This episode is also brought to you by ShapeConnect. For all our business owners and leaders out there seeking to solve challenges, improve operations, and grow faster, we are excited to introduce to you the ShapeConnect Business Software and Services Matching Platform. Most small and growing businesses can gain advantages from leveraging outside experts and firms to define new strategies and reduce their workload. So what projects or challenges are you ready to tackle? From building a new website to convert more leads to selecting and implementing an ERP software to streamline operations, ShapeConnect can help you accelerate the process of making the right decisions for your business. Visit shapeconnect.com to sign up and share your business needs with a strategic advisor today. Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who can play the violin with a piano, (laughs) Mike Vandebogart. Thanks, Joe, and thank you once again to our loyal listeners for uh, tuning in. Uh, Not a lot of updates this uh, episode, but we're going to give our Patreon shout-outs here. Um, So that's Anna Kuljew, Kimberly Spence, Christopher Lawson, Nicole uh, Schapner, Rachel Bauer, Gatsby Dustman, cool name, Rachel Carlson, and Melody Piling. Gatsby. Gatsby. That is a cool name. So uh, thank you guys so much for supporting the show. Um, Joe and I have big plans to kind of, uh, you know, we're always constantly getting better equipment, and we eventually want to get a little space to actually record in, professional space. Yeah, we're down to one camera after all the problems last time. Yeah, we had some uh, (laughs) video issues, so uh, no video episode last time, so we have... Um, how we did it the first time tonight, <laughs> uh, but it's all good. We, uh, that's why your contributions matter so much because we can get better equipment, better space to record in. Eventually we'd like to do some on location recording. Um, that's obviously much farther down the road, but, yeah. uh, other than that, um, we also now have uh, YouTube memberships available on YouTube. So it's similar to Patreon, but uh, the benefits are a little different, and the tiers are a little different, but it's an, it's another avenue for uh, listeners to help the shot if they don't want to join another platform. Totally get it. Uh, so you can go onto YouTube, and under under any of our videos, you'll see a button that says Join. And uh, I'm working on getting all of our current content up onto YouTube ad-free of YouTube ads. There still may be some in-episode ads from time to time, but also all of our Patreon-only episodes will be available there as well uh, for people who join the YouTube membership program. So, And there's some, for the, the real you know, wealthy individuals that contribute, there will be like live streams and um, if we, we start getting people in those tiers. So check it out. Um, 
Finally, this is a, one of the fun episodes Joe and I like doing. It's not one of our normal episodes. We're going to be talking about historical mysteries. And I just wanted to give a disclaimer ahead of time before people start emailing us and making comments <laughs> that... Um, they jo- still will, but we now have the disclaimer. So um, Joe and I are both big history buffs, so this stuff's really cool to us. But in the uh, the because of time, uh, th- some things were condensed down, and we may have overlooked some details about each of the mysteries. But um, you, we, if we included everything about each one of these, the podcast would be like three days. It'd long. be like four hours per topic, <laughs> yeah. And then we could branch off into create. Well, it's like a hardcore history with Dan Carlin. Yeah, and it's obviously, like thirty-two hours long because he gets into the weeds. Yeah, and obviously these <laughs> things have been written about, well written about for some some of them for hundreds or thousands of years, <laughs> and uh, so you know we pulled information from a lot of different sources, and uh, we're kind of going to give our take on on these mysteries and what we think happened, and um. You know, if people don't like this episode, I guess, you know, just wait for our next episode. It'll be one of the normal ones. Uh, but <laughs> I like talking about this stuff. Yeah, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, sure. that's true. <laughs> so uh, that's all I had. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. Some of the world's oldest legends and tales have been born of the unknown. Ancient lost civilizations, standing rock formations that seem to have no purpose, have baffled mankind for thousands of years. Join us this week as we investigate a few of history's mysteries. So I uh, missed my mark there, Mike, <laughs> just a little bit. It's okay. We won't hold it against I, you. Uh, I take uh, great pride in doing things correctly, and I <laughs> must have hit the mute button when I slid it up because I'm like, I got the thing on. Whatever. Whatever. So we're, right now we're going to go into the first one is going to be Stonehenge, but I'm going to just talk a little bit about life in the Bronze Age, just some random facts, uh, interesting things about the Bronze Age for those of you who might not know about it. And for those who know a lot about it, you will probably be disappointed at the level of detail I get in. <laughs> So, iron was discovered during the Bronze Age, which ultimately contributed towards the conclusion of the Bronze Age. Makes sense. It does, because it's better. (laughs) Uh, The Bronze Age was in the middle of the Stone Age and the Iron Age. In in the middle of, he means between. Yes. Yeah, the Stone Age came first, and then the Iron Age came after. (laughs) The wheel was invented then. Uh, The wheel was first invented in the Bronze Age and used as a pottery wheel. So, they used the wheel sideways first. (laughs) Before they realized it could be used vertically. Yes. Uh, the first form of writings were started as believed to have started Mesopotamia, which is now modern-day Iraq, in a form of writing called cuneiform. Is that right? Cuneiform? I, I don't know. I'm sure someone will correct us. Also in Egypt, they started to use a form of writing called hieroglyphs. I know that one. Yes. Uh, in the Bronze Age, Bronze Age, people mainly traveled by boat. Long wooden boats were used to travel long distances and were brilliant for transporting heavy goods. Tin and copper were mixed together to make bronze. 
uh, irrigation was invented during the Bronze Age. People lived in houses that were made of materials like wood and stone. So you're starting to see civilizations really come about with technology. Yep. Uh, the average human life expectancy was only 26 years. So we would be like elders. Yeah, like I'm 10 age. years past the, uh, <laughs> I'm really like making it. Yeah. That like makes so much sense why like reproduction starts at like 12 years old. That was like midlife crisis. Yeah, I mean. It's uh, crazy to think about like you would, being 12 and 13, you're halfway done with life. In the Bronze Age, life was so short and brutal that you needed to have offspring, you know, as soon as you could because you would either be killed by disease, animals, natural disasters, or other people. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. I'm super into that type of biology, evolutionary biology. Yeah. And that's, like, fascinating to me. I wonder if, like, 2,000 years from now, like, reproductive will probably, like, push later in life because we don't need to have babies that earlier. Like Maybe. People, people have babies later into their age, yeah. you know, would be living to like 150 and starting reproductive at like 20. Yeah. <laughs> uh, global pu- human population in 2000 BC was around 23 million only compared to 7.9 billion uh, estimated now. So. so humans did a really good job of populating <laughs> <laughs> since then. <laughs> We're like super efficient at replicating ourselves. Yes. Um, so I'm going to go right into Stonehenge. I'm assuming most people listening have at a minimum heard of Stonehenge. They, they've heard the name at least. Yes. Um, I so think it's a fair guess. Yeah. It's a prehistoric mo- monument in uh, Salisbury plain, uh, in Wiltshire, England, which is about two miles or for our English listeners, three kilometers west of Amsbury. Archaeologists believe it was constructed uh, from, you know, between the periods of 3000 BC and 2000 BC with the surrounding circular earth and ditch, um, or sorry, the surrounding circular earth bank and ditch, which constitute the earliest phase of the monument, have been dated to about 3100 BC. Uh, Radiocarbon dating suggests that the first blue stones were raised between 2400 and 2200 BC, um, although... I, I did see some some reports saying that it could have been as early as 3000 BC, and some some sites and these are reputable sites state that some people believe construction on Stonehenge started as far back as 5000 BC. So, one of the things you'll I'll mention later on is it it took over 1500 years to fully build Stonehenge. So it's not I like can imagine the size of the stone and primitive technology to get it there. Yeah, it's not like they just started one spring and it was done by the fall. Or, <laughs> or we'll get into theories. Or, <laughs> all right, I'll hold on to it. Yeah. You knew exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. So Giorgio um, Papalapadopoulos, whatever that guy's name the is, ancient aliens yeah. guy. He's in the theories. Awesome. Uh, we have a quote from him. Um, so, like I said, it's generally believed that the older structures date back to the late Neolithic period. So, the Neolithic period went from about 10,000 BC to about 4,500 BC, while some of the newer structures uh, structures were erected in the early Bronze Age. So, for Europe, so the interesting thing when I was researching the Bronze Age, uh, it started at different time periods around the world. So, it wasn't like the whole world just started at a at the same time. Yeah, we didn't all figure it out at the same time. Yeah, there wasn't global travel or internet or anything, so some of the bronze ages... That's almost more wild if you think about it. (laughs) Like, it was all similar around a time that humans learned a skill. 
Yeah, like, well, that's kind of neat. Like within a, within a tight window, without talking to each other. Yeah, like people were experimenting in, in different civilizations, kind of the same way. And well, you got to think like it. somebody figured out how to mix what is it, tin and copper, to create bronze, and they probably probably first thing created was weapons, and probably somebody traveled somewhere else with a sword or whatever they made bronze out of, yeah. and it started catching on, and it probably took. You know, think of how long it took you to travel from Europe to yeah. Asia. Yeah. Um, so probably it took generations yeah. before people started, you know, making this stuff in other parts of the world. But so, yeah, the, the Bronze Age really started in Europe between 3200 BC and 600 BC, or that's when it spanned. So we're going to get a little technical with some of the description of Stonehenge. But uh, Stonehenge's uh, Sarsens of which the largest weighs more than 40 tons and rises 24 feet, were likely sourced from quarries about 25 miles north of Salisbury Plain and transported with the help of sledges and ropes. They may have even already been scattered in the immediate vicinity when the monument's Neolithic architects first broke ground there. The smaller bluestones, now this is the thing that blows my mind, is these smaller bluestones, which were still massive, were sourced from... uh, Priscelli Hills in Wales, which was 200 miles away from Stonehenge. Yeah, so that, that's insane because, well, a 40 tons and 24 feet in the air. That those are the big ones, yeah. yeah but I'm saying, but like, still, like, yeah. Now that's a difficult lift. Yeah, and I, like, I believe yeah, we have the technology to do it, obviously. But it's like it's going to take a lot of guys, a crane, like fuel, yep. all the stuff we're using modern technology to lift something that big. They did back then when they like just had the wheel, kinda, and not even really the wheel. They were using it for pottery. Yeah, like they probably like, oh, like saw rocks roll, and they're like, that might be helpful. Yeah, and I believe I, I had it in my notes, and I don't know what happened to it, but I believe the smaller blue stones still weighed up to 20 tons. If they weighed one ton, <laughs> yeah, and they got it from tw- 200 miles away? Yeah. Like, I have theories. I'm not going to say it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the theories. Um, obviously, if you've seen pictures of Stonehenge, the ruins are now... Uh, the monument is now kind of in ruins, um, but it does have an orientation towards the sunrise on the summer solstice. So that's interesting that even that far back, they still had a decent. I went well. I wouldn't say a, they had. They were able to track stuff going on in the sky. They still believed that everything basically revolved around the Earth. Sure. At that point, but well, if you think about it, they see everything going around in a circle. And yeah. Knowing as little as they did, that makes sense. That's what it looks like is happening. Yeah. Uh, like I said, um, some researchers estimate that it, it took our prehistoric ancestors over 1,500 years to fully construct uh, construct the 100 massive upright stones in Stonehenge, which is, uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think. Like 20 generations of a family, like, worked on moving a rock somewhere? Think of how short <laughs> of a, t- you know, a attention span we have now, where we have things like TikTok and Snapchat that are, like, five <laughs> seconds long. These people were able to spend 1,500 years doing the same thing. I mean, it's kind of... To be fair, they only live till their 20s. <laughs> That's true. And if they're the ones hauling the rocks, they probably live to their, like, 18. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's as we know with other ancient structures, especially in Egypt, a lot of times slave labor was used to build uh, these. And Yeah, I'm sure that was the case. Based on my understanding of ancient Egypt and other places, they didn't exactly treat the slaves the best. <laughs> Yeah. Unfortunately. They, they never do. So obviously Stonehenge is probably, if other than maybe Big Ben, I've never been to 
England. It's like eighty generations of people. That's a lot at that at that rate. Yeah. Of where they're, I said like eighteen. If they like died around eighteen years of age, right? That's crazy. Yeah, it's wild, and it's obviously one of the most famous landmarks in the United Kingdom. It's uh, registered as a or regarded as a cultural icon uh, in Great Britain. It became legally protected. Um, it became a legally protected scheduled ancient monument in 1882. And then the site became a World Heritage Site in 1986, which kind of shocked it took that long. I mean, something, I guess... No one was messing with it. I mean, yeah, what could you do? 40-ton yeah, stones? Yeah. I mean... You're not moving them. No. So Stonehenge is owned by the Crown and managed by the English Heritage. Uh, the surrounding land is owned by a national trust. So, what was it used for? Landing site. Landing <laughs> site. All right, go on. Sorry. Uh, Sorry, it just came out. So, the, the, the actual use of Stonehenge has puzzled people for thousands of years. Uh, people have been thinking about what it's been used probably, at least in modern times, probably going back, you know, 2,000 years. And a lot of people have, in modern times, believed that it was a burial ground or at least it was for 500 years during the first two phases of its construction from 3000 BC to 2500 BC. And they based this off some evidence they found. So they found charred remains uh, in holes around the site known as the Aubrey holes uh, that once held small standing stones. Analysis of these bones suggested that they were buried during the fi- this 500 year period after 2500 BC the people who used Stonehenge stopped burying human remains in the stone circle itself and began burying them in ditches. Um, so they, I think it's a pr- pretty understood concept that it was a burial ground, but... Um, Char- charred remains and holes? Yeah. Could they have been like rocket exhaust ports that people <laughs> were in at the wrong time? Yeah. Uh, some of the research goes on to, uh, from studying the remains of those buried at the site, we know that the bodies of the dead were transported from far and wide uh, to be buried at Stonehenge. Some appear to have lived more than 120 mi- miles away from Wales. Carbon dating of the remains suggests that they were cremated off-site, transported to Stonehenge, and buried there around 44 to 5,000 years ago. So think about 120 miles in five, you know, 5,000 years ago. Most people at that time never even left their village. So this was a pretty big deal to, if a family member died, they have the remains, you know. Yeah, they do a whole pilgrimage to their. 120 miles. That's that's a pretty big deal back then. So evidence to support this theory is dotted all around the landscape. Not if you're flying. (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll try and stop. I'll try and stop. Um, So uh, evidence to support this theory is dotted all around the landscape. Um, around the monument, the area within two mile radius of Stonehenge contains hundreds of Bronze Age burial mounds. So, I think, at least as the burial, the burial site theory, it's pretty solid. However, they researchers still struggle with what other purposes Stonehenge might have served because, like they said, it was only for a short five hundred year period that it appeared to be a burial site. So, a team of researchers studied Stonehenge as well as uh, as well as several other stone formations across uh, the UK and came to the conclusion that Stonehenge was likely built to track the movement of the sun, moon, and stars thousands of years ago. Uh, An analysis of the position and orientation of the stones compared with well-known astronomical alignments has revealed a strong alignment uh, with the movement of the sun, 
and the moon in particular. So that's really interesting. You know, kind of think of like, a, I don't know if growing up, my grandparents had a sundial in their yard. Think of Stonehenge kind of similar to like a sun, sundial on a massive scale, almost like a calendar. You can track yeah. what time of the year it is. Because think like we take for granted that we have watches and phones and things that tell time. But think about living 5,000 years ago, like one day after the other just blends together. How would you keep track of what year it was or what day it was? Or See, but like I understand that. But if it took 1,500 years to build, That's true. Like, <laughs> like they're like our 80 generations from now ancestors will really like this clock. Right. Like, like that's... <laughs> It seems like they would want to do a more immediate one, maybe like maybe a there small was an, one next to it. An essential boulder they stacked first. Yeah, I don't know. Um, another theory that it, uh, about Stonehenge was that it was a place of healing. So a theory put forward by two of Britain's world-renowned experts on Stonehenge, Professor Timothy Darville and Jeff Wainwright, uh, suggests that the monument was a site of pilgrimage and healing. According to this school of thought, the smaller blue stones at the center of the circle are the key to this theory and ultimately uh, the, the supposed purpose of Stonehenge. Uh, as we know, the blue stones were dragged 180 miles from the mountains of southwest Wales to the site at Stonehenge using primitive technology. So uh, those researchers argued that this massive undertaking required considerable resources and effort, resources that would only have been possible had there been a very good reason to attempt such a monumental undertaking. So I agree with that. So back in that time, they had a, a pretty primitive view of the world and they probably were superstitious. And maybe for some reason they thought this location and maybe those, those rocks that were dragged from 200 miles away must've had some kind of significant yep. meaning. People to have them. always built monuments to the gods or to yeah. whoever they worship. So this could be their to version the aliens. of aliens. Yeah, <laughs> you said it, dummy. So, and they go on to say, they argue that it's owed to the supposed magic, magical healing powers of the stones due to their proximity to traditional healing springs. And an interesting thing I found is they said chippings carved out of the bluestone rocks found during digs around the site were used to produce amulets, suggesting the association of the rocks with protective and healing powers, uh, healing properties. And they said this went on into the medieval period, so not that long ago in the, sp the span of time. So, um, it, you know, probably was, I'm guessing if they buried people there, maybe it had some kind of healing purpose too. I mean, that's, like we said, to travel those distances to bury someone or to drag a 40-ton, you know, 20-ton rock, they had to do it for, for a pretty important reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least you'd hope so. So the next question we get into it is, who built it? Uh, so there's lots of theories out there. And um, I think there's a TV show that touches on this on Showtime. It's not on anymore. I can't remember the name of it, but... Um, I'll look it up while you're going. Okay. Uh, so according to 12th, uh, 12th century, century writer Jeffrey of uh, Monmouth, whose tale of King Arthur and mi the mythical account of English history were considered factual well into the Middle Ages. And uh, he claims that Stonehenge is the handiwork of the wizard Merlin. So, the story goes, in the mid-5th century, hundreds of British nobles were slaughtered by the Saxons and buried on Salisbury Plain. Hoping to erect a, a memorial to his fallen subjects, uh, King uh, Aurelius Ambrosius, 
probably butchered that, sent an army to Ireland to retrieve a stone circle known as the Giant's Ring, which ancient giants had built from magical African bluestones. The soldiers successfully defeated the Irish but failed to move the stones, so Merlin used his sorcery to spirit them across the sea and arrange them above the mass grave. Legend has it that Ambrosius, the brother of uh, Uther, King Arthur's father, are buried there as well. While many believed this account to be true, to be the true story of Stonehenge's creation for centuries, the, mom, the monument's construction predates Merlin, or at least the real-life figures who are said to have inspired him by several thousand years. So, a cool story. And I, what's the show? Um, Operation Stonehenge? No, it wasn't like a real, like oh. a drama, like a, about King Arthur. Oh. You know what I'm talking about, I do right? know what you're talking about. I can't think of the name, though. Yep, now I'm going to have to look that one up. So, um, other theories uh, claim that the Saxons, the Danes, the Romans, the Greeks, or the Egyptians built Stonehenge. Um, in the 17th century, archaeologist John Aubrey made the claim that Stonehenge was the work of the Celtic high priest known as the Druids, a theory widely popularized by the antiquarian, apologize for the pronunciation, William Stuckley, who had unearthed primitive graves at the site. So I've heard of the Druids. Um, there's another TV show about that that I, I can't think of. I just, I'm drawing blanks today on TV shows. Yeah, well, the, the one you're talking about before is just called Merlin. Yeah, I don't know if it was that one. I, there's Excalibur, there's King Arthur Legends of the Sword, Knights Round Table, and the next closest one is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> I'll think of it probably after we're done <laughs> recording. Uh, so many modern historians and archaeologists now agree that several distinct tribes of people contributed to Stonehenge, uh, each undertaking a different phase of its construction. Bones, tools, and other artifacts found on the site seem to support this hypothesis. They think the first stage was achieved by Neolithic agrarians who were likely indigenous to the British Isles. Later, it's believed the groups with advanced tools and more communal way of life left their stamp on the site, some have suggested that they were immigrants from the European continent, but many scientists think they were native Britons uh, descended from the original builders. So I, I, I'm imagining in this time it was probably people native to that land yeah. that were building this. I, I don't think it was any of those people. <laughs> we know. <laughs> so Keep, keep, keep going. Um, so the, the question that everyone asks, why is Stonehenge so special and how could it have been built? in a time of such primitive people. So that's a good question. Yeah. It's <laughs> a really good question. So, you know, scientists have done a pretty good job of figuring out when it was built and maybe what it was used for, but people are still to this day puzzled with how they could have built such a massive structure with such primitive technology. You're talking 20, 40 ton rocks transported over hundreds of miles. Um, the wheel had been invented, but, I mean, a very primitive form of the wheel. It's not like they had big rigs, you yep. know, hauling this stuff. And even in today's world, you'd need a pretty darn big crane to, you know, lift 40 tons. And then to haul that 200 miles, that wouldn't be something, you know, just anybody could do. So even in today's modern world, that would still be a, a difficult thing to to do. So... According to long-standing theory, Stonehenge's builders fashioned sledges and rollers out of tree trunks to log blue stones from the uh, Priscelli Hills. 
They then transferred the boulders onto rafts and floated them first along the Welsh coast and then up the River Avon or Avon to Salisbury Plain. Alternatively, they may have towed each stone with a fleet of vessels. A more recent hypothesis hypo- I can't talk today. <laughs> a more recent hypothesis uh, have them transporting the blue stones with supersized wi- wicker baskets or a combination of ball bearings, long groove planks, and teams of oxen. Um, so it just okay. <laughs> the amount of resources needed to pull that off, yeah, over that period of time. So, like, imagine they did these ball bearings, wicker baskets, and oxen. Yeah, like, over. who's like feeding the people and the oxen the whole way for two hundred miles to yeah. pull a rock multiple times? Like, because it's not just that's like one trip. Yeah, how many are there? Like, a, a there's a handful of them. Yeah, and, and those are the big ones. Then you have the smaller ones. Over there was over a hundred stones yeah. in total. Like over fifteen hundred years. It's like it probably took a generation just to move one of those stones two hundred wow. miles. It's it's. Yeah. And who was running this? I mean, was there someone at yes a top of the pile like, like directing fortieth generation? They're like, you know what? Forget this thing. <laughs> like technology has come a long way since yeah. we started moving the rocks. Like maybe we should build something else. Yeah. So. Um, as early as the 1970s, geologists have been adding their voices to the debate over how Stonehenge came into being, challenging the classic image of industrious Neolithic builders pushing, carting, rolling, or hauling uh, these bluestones from faraway whales. Some scientists have suggested that glaciers, not humans, did most of the heavy lifting and deposited those massive boulders kind of where they are erected right now. So... There has to be a YouTube video of like geologists, Neolithic experts, and historians that are just fighting about this, <laughs> and it's probably hilarious. So I, uh, <laughs> I apologize. My my theories that I had pasted here are, are gone, or I I didn't paste them there. But um, one of the theories I read, and Joe will like this, that it, that it's an alien landing site. Or there like you a, go. Yeah, it's like an alien airport. It's weird that your other theories just disappeared. <laughs> I, and I didn't do it. So what what theory do you think that how they were able to build these things? I, I honestly, okay, so I'm actually going to go pretty ridiculous here. All right. Actually, not as ridiculous as aliens. Okay. And I, I heard a guy on TikTok explain it the best way I've heard it. And he said, think about if anyone's seen a, a picture recently of the Titanic mm-hmm. and how it's like slowly disappearing in the seafloor. It's mm-hmm. completely eroding away. And that was a hundred years ago. That's it. So there's a longstanding theory that there are major civilizations that predate us that were actually technologically advanced. Yeah. And then some sort of worldwide cataclysmic event wiped them out. And then the predominant theory is look at a ship like Titanic. It's got electricity. It's got lights. It's got modern technology on it. Yeah. And in almost a hundred years, it's almost unrecognizable on the seafloor. Yeah. Correct. Yep. So now take uh, modern civilization now add all of humanity wiped off maybe a few hundred thousand people scattered everywhere yeah that don't have the ability to keep this all going now they're trying to make it work for a generation next generation next do that for 1500 years 2000 yeah. years 3000 4000 years what is left of our modern society all of the metal everything else gone completely maybe our plastics uh, even those <laughs> yeah. after that long of time would down. be completely gone. You know, what would be left anything that had stone in it, probably Stonehenge. <laughs> so 
that this is like the theory that I've heard before. I'm not yeah. necessarily subscribing to it, but like, what if those were like frames or a part of a much larger structure and everything completely disappeared around it? Yeah, like everything else was made out of wood and earth. Exactly. Or even metal or yeah. or, or steel or electronics. Or bronze. Or electronics. Or yeah. like, could we have had a civilization that got up to like our level now, huge cataclysmic event, and then we're coming back here finally after thousands and thousands of years and we're finding all these historical sites where all that's left are the rubble remains. Yeah. So part of me thinks like, I wonder, I don't think we got to like computer level era, but I'm almost wondering like, could it have been a big building and they Mm. had better tech that actually moved the stones? Like maybe they did have wheels. Maybe they did have all these things, but it was made of materials that have since just been gone on the planet. So that's a crazy theory, but I like that theory because <laughs> well, we're, we're witnessing it before our eyes. Like the Titanic's a great example. Yeah. And arguably at the bottom of the ocean would be the best place for something like that to be preserved. Yeah. You get something out on land in the weather, yeah. it's going to degrade even Over faster. 5,000 years. 100%. It'll be gone completely. You would never even, you'd be able to pick up the soil in which it was gone and not tell. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, that's a good, that's a good crazy theory. I think an ancient aliens uh, theory, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to go maybe a little more plausible. I, I kind of like, uh, excuse the, me, excuse <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with the glacier theory and say that maybe these stones were deposited and maybe they, they moved them a short distance, probably, you know, carved them up. So they looked more square. Oh, so they didn't deposit them in the circle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Stacked up real nice. I think if they were like all like spread out over the course of a couple square miles, it'd be a lot easier for a prehistoric civilization to move those into place. Um, I think it's still amazing that they were able to kind of line it up with the celestial cycles, which is uh, pretty cool. I, th- I don't think that's that hard. I wouldn't know back do then. It. Well, uh, so <laughs> you also have to look at the night sky compared yeah. to what we see it as. They saw like the Milky Way and the billion. Yeah. They saw all of it with the naked eye. Like we have to go. You had to go to Hawaii. Yeah. To see that. That's what everybody saw all the time, no matter where you were. So if you see that all day, every day, you have nothing to do all the time. You can build something that points. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, like, like you could watch the Milky Way and be like, oh, the Milky Way is always right here. Yeah. At this time of year. Uh, have it point that way in the moon and all that yeah, stuff. Like yeah. Have it point there this time of year. And, uh, well, Joe is going with ancient lost civilization. I'm going with glaciers. So I, uh, who knows? Y- we'll y- never know. Yeah. I think, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I think we're both right. Um, our next historical mystery is a real puzzling one. Uh, Joe, Joe's going to go into some, some kind of fun facts about the area that, yep. We'll this talk about found? ancient Greece. Ancient Greece. And I'll let Mike tell you the name of the thing. Oh, no. Uh, and, <sighs> I told you I'd get this wrong. Yeah, keep 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 warming up. I'll go through the thing. Just think about it. Okay. <laughs> ancient Greeks came up with the concept of democratia, geez, democratia, our rule of the people, thus establishing the world's first democracy. That's why I should have read democracy first. There you go. Democratia. However, it lasted only 185 years. Which, uh, oh, we beat that by a little bit. A, a little bit. <laughs> Ancient Greece condoned slavery. In fact, around 40% to 80% of Athens' population were slaves. The handshake originated in ancient Greece. It was a symbol of peace, showing that neither person was carrying a weapon. And during the Roman era, the handshake was actually more of an arm grab. I'm sure you've seen that in movies yeah, where they, they grab each other's arms. Yeah. Uh, and knights would shake the other hand and attempt to shake loose any hidden weapon. So it was actually like feeling for a dagger. Yeah. It like, was hey, like, hey, we're it, friends, right? It served a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. I'll grab people's arms. Why'd you do that? Make sure you're not going to kill me. <laughs> 
Contrary to popular belief, ancient Greek status statues were not always white. Once upon a time, they were painted with vibrant cover, colors. However, over time, the colors faded to the monochrome that we see today. And if you're Joe, they always look white. Yeah, I'm colorblind, <laughs> so I don't see colors. I see some colors. <laughs> the ancient Greeks worshipped an unknown god or multiples for, or is that later in life? Um, I have to go really digging back into school. They, did, they didn't get into like the Mytholo- like Greek mythology. mythology. Yeah, they did. Well, that's that's what I was, I was going to say. Like yeah, maybe this is early. Uh, another interesting fact in our list of terms: idiot originated in ancient <laughs> Greece. In ancient Greece, an idiot was essentially a person who didn't participate in political or public arenas. That's hilarious because now we call people who do do that idiots. (laughs) Like if you do get caught up in politics, you're an idiot. It's a waste of time. Don't do it. That's hilarious. That's come full 180. Yeah. Uh, Another interesting fact in our list is that in ancient Greece, the unibrow was a sign of beauty and intelligence. (laughs) That's another 180 that we've done since ancient Greece. According to the ancient Greeks, eating while lying down with others serving you is a sign of power and luxury. The elite usually practice this custom, and we still do that today. Yeah. You call room well, service. Joe and I don't. Oh, I do at hotels? <laughs> room service? Well, they don't walk in and, like, feed you grapes while you're laying on the bed. Uh, the hotels I go to do. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a better job, I guess. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're worse hotels. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want these people feeding you. Okay. Ancient Greeks used stones as toilet paper. That just sounds painful. Well, I've used hold on hiking. Hold on. <laughs> if you find the right stone, <laughs> like one that's been in a river for a while. Oh, it's real smooth. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to say verbs, but like it would f- go smoothly. Yeah, probably. I Well, yeah. I, okay. I wouldn't be surprised if that same custom is used today to find skipping stones. Yeah. <laughs> We just don't use it for so that purpose You're skipping anymore. stones with your children. You can tell them. Maybe Greeks. that's how that started. Should work. we start a rumor? Skipping stones started with people finding those stones and then doing that, and then they got rid of it in the river, there and then go. it started skipping. Probably. There you go. Discovered here first for ancient <laughs> Greeks experts. <laughs> so ancient Greeks were highly superstitious. In fact, they held strange superstitions about food as well. Some wouldn't eat fava beans as they thought they contained the souls of the dead. That would be terrifying. Yeah. Probably because of the gas afterwards. <laughs> Another interesting fact about ancient Greece is that slaves were traded for salt. That gave the rise to the common expression, not worth his salt. Oh, Which I have not, I mean, I've heard that expression. I've heard of the expression. I've never heard anyone use it. I've never heard anyone under the age of like 80 use that expression. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, State-induced infanticide in ancient Greece. All newborns in Sparta were shown to a council. These inspectors examined the babies for any physical defects. Subsequently, they abandoned the unfit ones on a nearby hillside. That so, is represented in that movie 300. Yeah, which usually stuff in movies is not accurate, but knowing a little bit about Sparta, like I can totally see them doing that. Oh, like, yeah, having like everything be perfect. Think of like an entire and, country just of like Marines. Yeah. <laughs> But like or not even more, Marines, more like, bloodthirsty, like special forces, like, you know, that I don't know what's our most elite fighting force. In I'm US. sure we don't even know yeah. that one, like yeah. some dark so, budget, like, like, oh, you were a seal. 
Well, yeah. you're the best seal. You're retired now. We're and, like, the, and no one knows you. We're like the classified Navy SEALs. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so picture an entire country of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good little kind of fun facts of Greece. All right. So what's the thing we're talking about, Mike? So this thing we're talking about is a device, and it's called the Antikythera. Boom. You got mechanism. it. You got I it. I got it. It's like Mike Tyson saying Antikythera. <laughs> Antikythera. So... <laughs> This uh, device dates back to around 205 BC to 87 BC. Some consider it to be the first analog computer in human history. Uh, so it was discovered back in the spring of 1900. There was a group of people sponge, uh, sponge diving off the tiny island of Antikythera. Ah, I said it wrong. Uh, no, I think that was right. Antikythera. Antikythera between Crete and mainland Greece. And they found a shipwreck full of uh, ancient Greek treasures. This actually would turn out to be the first major underwater archaeology operation in modern history. So that's kind of cool. So by early 1901, the divers had begun to recover amazing uh, good ancient Greek goods, including bronze sculptures, glassware, jewelry, uh, amphorae, which I looked up. It's a type of container. I don't know why people don't just say containers. Um, furniture fittings and tableware. Uh, even at So at the peak of the dive, a gunboat from the Greek Navy was actually stationed over the site to deter looters. So obviously this was a big deal back then, and the word got out, and you can just imagine people probably just flocking there to – because it wasn't just the stuff I listed. I, I read in other places there's lots of, like, gold coins and all kinds of cool stuff. Um among the amazing items recovered, um, the divers also found an indistinguishable lump about the size of a large dictionary, which was probably recovered because it looked green, suggesting it was made of bronze. At the time, it was not considered to be anything remarkable. Um, fast forward now 120 years to present day, and that green lump is now considered to be one of the most important objects of uh, high technology ever recovered from the ancient world. And... Um, what people are now calling an ancient Greek uh, astronomical calculating machine known as the Antikythera mechanism. Uh, so all the items from the shipwreck were transferred to the National Museum of Archaeology in Athens for storage and analysis. And this device kind of just sat in a box for decades. Um, and actually, let me f go so back. I didn't know it was a device at the time. They didn't know it was a device at the time? <laughs> Jeez, I keep turning off my mic. Joe must have a, he's a little sniffly tonight. I hope he doesn't yeah. have COVID. No, I have allergies. Yeah. <laughs> I already had COVID a few months ago. <laughs> um, so actually on May 17th, 1902, so I'm going to back up a little before it went into storage. An archaeologist working for the museum noticed that one of the pieces of rock had fallen off, revealing a tiny gear wheel inside uh, about the size of a coin. So originally, scholars thought this was an astronomical clock, but many considered the device too complex to have been uh, constructed during the same period as the other pieces found. I was going to say, a gear the size of a coin is not easy to make now. No. So now it went back into storage, and actually it wasn't even looked at until 1951 when British science historian and Yale University professor, uh, professor Derek DeSola Price became interested in the object. So they waited 51 years after seeing complex gears in there to actually, like, look at it? Yeah, right. I, <laughs> if I was, like, working at the museum, I'd be like, uh, 
I think we need to look at this a little closer. Yeah, what, you want to be like the guy who discovered it? <laughs> yeah, right. It was like, eh, maybe he like hated his job. He's like, yeah, forget this. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, thinking thinking about that device, I would be all over that, like trying to figure out what it was. It's like, like the if, first Rolex. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, so like we said, uh, this guy became interested in the object in 1951. And he eventually published, uh, they did some like x-ray photography of it. And he published a big paper in the 70s on this device. And uh, further dives have actually gone on in that area in 2014 and 2015. And a new five-year dive started in May 2020. And I, I didn't look for too much new information. I didn't see anything that they found anything new, but... They are actively searching that area because they they think that this wasn't the only device created, which would make sense. They there's probably so looking for like more of the exact same thing in the same area or pieces because this device came up incomplete. So oh, okay, yeah. So big question: what what did they use this thing for? Because it's a pretty complex device to be made in 200 BC. Um, you know, think about life back then. You know, well, if they're a complex civilization and somehow it was like mummified <laughs> in a specific way that it didn't rot away. Right. So over the years, several investigations have tried to figure out what this device was used for. Uh, some argue that it was an astro, you say astrolabe? Yeah. Yeah. For tracking the stars or a navigation device. Um, but most theories proved to be wrong and they just didn't add up. The first real theory that came out on this device came from a German um, German guy named Albert Rehm in 1905. He read inscriptions on the mechanism uh, concerning the risings and settings of the stars as used, viewed from Earth, and he found a, a key astronomical cycle, 19-year, 70-year cycles of the moon, and a 220-year, a 220-month uh, eclipse cycle. So the thing actually had kind of instructions on how to use it written on it that was tracking the cycles of the moon and the sun and you know the eclipses which is pretty cool that just sounds like an astrolabe (laughs) like that's that's what it is this thing this thing gets a lot cooler though it actually yeah i'm gonna it it tracked uh well i won't i'll get into it in a second okay (laughs) i'm just looking at pictures of it against like modern day astrolabes and they're yeah they're pretty similar i mean in reality it's kind of like a big wind-up clock yeah but for 200 bc that that's pretty impressive. Um, so this guy went on to make a radical suggestion that the dev- device was an astronomical calculating machine. He had the groundbreaking idea that it contained uh, um, these gearing devices mounted on other gears, a level of sophistication seemingly incredible for ancient Greece. In addition, he proposed that all five planets known in the ancient world, which were Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, were displayed in a ring system on the front of the mechanism. So fast forward to 1971 now. We're going back to that British historian Price. Um, Like I said, they made X-ray and gamma ray images of the 82 fragments and published an extensive 70-page paper on their findings called Gears from the Gods in 1974. And that actually sounds like an interesting book. I may try and find it somewhere to rent or to read. Um, Today, only a third of the original mechanism survives, 
split into 82 fragments designated by letters A to G and numbers 1 to 75. From the X-rays, Price made a crucial discovery that the 19-year cycle of the moon identified by Rehm in the inscriptions on the mechanism could be calculated using its gearings. So even though Price made this great progress, he also got a lot wrong, and he only made unresolved suggestions about the planets. When he died in 1983, uh, another guy named Michael Wright kind of took up the baton and uh, kept analyzing this device. While Price had discovered how some of the sun and moon systems worked, it was Wright who set about reconstructing the gearing and a display for the planets. So Wright wanted to get, and I think they have made a full reconstruction of it based on the pictures I saw. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, like schematics. I think they took the x-rays and like, Somebody made a Lego one that was in Wired magazine. That's like, pretty cool. What Lego Technic or whatever? Yeah, they, like made they built a whole thing that like mirrored the X-ray plans. So, a lot of the things I read too, I think it's helpful to know about before we go on just how Greeks looked at space at that time, and they they got a lot wrong. So their view was that Earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth so like the planet in the bat the stars and everything were kind of like a fixed thing in the sky and the planets kind of just rotated around earth including the sun Mm -hmm. which obviously we all know is not the case there's like (laughs) probably less than one percent that don't think that's the case i'm sure there's a few out there um but more than a century later though his astonishing ideas are at the core of a new model of the machine created by ucl uh, research team. So, and like I said, people are calling this the first analog computer. So, um, I mean, it's not wrong. Yeah. So it's got how, a gear set. It's used for something like, yeah, it's calculating something. So how did the device work? I, I kind of jokingly said it's a big wind up clock, but it's much more complicated than that. So on the front face of the mechanism, there's a fixed ring dial representing the ecliptic and 12 zo- zodiac Zodical, I said that right? I don't know. I'm getting Zodiacal? a lot. I'm getting a lot of words wrong. We're gonna hear it from the listeners this episode. Yeah, it's, um, it's ancient Greek stuff. <laughs> I'm just, I'll just like submit. So, and they're marked off with equal thirty degree sectors. Uh, this matched with the Babylonian custom of assigning one twelfth of the ecliptic to each zodiac sign equally, even though the constellation boundaries were variable. This is what's crazy. I, like, don't know what that means. <laughs> like, they figured all this stuff out back then. Like, with the internet now, I still probably couldn't make that device. Like, with tools I have, like, because I'm just not smart enough, I don't think. Well, if someone did it on TikTok, you'd learn. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, even then, like, I would do it wrong. Like, I would try and make it. Like, you know when they do those uh, videos where, like, they do Pinterest, like, images, and people oh, try yeah. and recreate them, and they just put, like, hashtag nailed it, and it's, like, totally wrong? <laughs> like, that's what I would do. Right now, with modern tools. I have trouble tying my own tie sometimes <laughs> watching a video. So I do know that because I used to tie your tie for you at work. Oh, <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> these people that have nothing are, like, making these super intricate things that track the stars, and you're having trouble Can't tying tie a tie. tie. <laughs> it's, it's really sad. This is uh, this this is this plays in my theory. This plays in my theory of if we had some sort of major event happen, we would just be done, and all civilization just goes away for a few thousand years, and we come right back to this level. There you go. Um, Okay, okay, go on. (laughs) 
getting into the weeds a little here. So uh, I'll try and cut out some stuff that's just too in-depth. But um, outside uh, that dial is another ring which is rotatable, marked off with the months and days of the Sothic Egyptian calendar. 12 months of 30 days plus 5 intercalary days. Um, the months are marked with the Egyptian names for the months transcribed into the Greek alphabet. Uh, the first task, then, is to rotate the Egyptian calendar ring to match the current zodiac points. And I'll stop right here. When I was researching how to use this thing, it sounded really complicated. Like, Yeah, I'm looking at the plans. Like, it almost seemed like too much work. <laughs> oh, yeah. <this laughs> to just use it. <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's crazy that they're able to come up with this device. Yeah. Because like, it's very complicated. Yeah. So, like we said, um, the... The first task, then, is to rotate the Egyptian calendar ring to match the current zodiac points. The Egyptian calendar ignored leap days, so it advanced through a full zodiac sign in about 120 years. So not the most accurate device. Um, the mechanism was operated by turning a small hand crank, which is now lost. Hold on. Not the most accurate, because it skipped leap days. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Mine would miss entire years. Well, no. It, it, I would line it up right. Yeah, it skipped... Um, did I say leap days or, oh, yeah, leap days. So, yeah, that's like there's one every four years. Yeah. Like it missed that. So it wasn't very accurate. No. <laughs> um, but it caught back up in 120 years. There you go. <laughs> so the mechanism, like I said, it was operated by turning a small hand crank, which is now lost, which was linked via a crown gear to the largest gear. The four uh, spocked gear visible on the front of the fragment A spoked. Oh, jeez. You're like over over complicating normal words I know. now because you're stuck in ancient Greece. It's it's late today. I'm I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> I'm, tired. I'm so tired. So tired. I can't tie a tie. I can't, I can't build an anti criteria device. <laughs> I'm useless. Um. So this moved the date pointer on the front of the dial, uh, which would be set to the correct Egyptian calendar day. The year on this device is not selectable, so it is necessary to know the year currently set or by looking up the cycles indicated by the various can calendar cycle indicators on the back in the Babylonian tables uh, for the day. Uh, so it had like... It had a user's manual? It did, yeah. <laughs> it had a, basically had a user's manual on the back. So... <laughs> This is awesome. Yeah, so... I did not know about this thing. Really? I did not. I, I might have seen it, like, in passing, but I've never... I'm, like, totally going to binge YouTube videos. It was on, on an thing. Ancient Aliens episode. Oh, I haven't so. had normal cable in so long. That's oh. my problem. It's because you're spending too much money on people feeding you in hotels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the crank moves the date pointer about 78 days per full, full rotation. So hitting a particular day on the dial would be easily possible if the mechanism were in good working condition. The action of turning the hand crank would also cause all interlocked gears within the mechanism to rotate, resulting in uh, the simultaneous calculation of the position of the sun, the moon, the moon phases, eclipse, and calendar cycles, of, uh, and perhaps the locations of planets. So, you know what this reminds me of? My grandparents had an old grandfather clock in their house. Yep. And it used to track... Uh, not only time, but it had like a moon cycle. Yeah, the moon phases. The moon too. phases, uh -huh. and it tracked something else. Um, so it's kind of cool. So if you're an operator of the de this device, you got a lot of work 
cut out for you. It sounds very complicated. So the operator also had to be aware of the positions of the spiral dial pointers on the two large dials in the back. The pointer had a follower that tracked the spiral incisions in the metal as the dials incorporated four or five full rotations of the pointers. When a pointer reached the terminal uh, month location at either end of the spiral, the pointer's follower had to be manually moved to the other end of the spiral before proceeding further. Um, now on the rear face of the device, in July 2008, scientists reported new findings in the journal Nature showing that the mechanism not only tracked the metonic calendar and predicted solar eclipses, but also calculated the timing of several athletic games, including the ancient Olympi Olympic Games. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> oh, so they, they plan the games around certain times Probably, from yeah. the device. But then the device, you know, technically told you when the next game was going to be. Yeah, I'm curious if there were like a bunch of these or if this was like a really important one that was made. Well, they they assume there were more than one made, and they just haven't found any other devices. So on the back of the mechanism, there are five dials, the two large displays, uh, the, the Metonic and the Saros, and three smaller indicators, the so-called Olympiad dial, which has recently been renamed to the Games dial, as it did not track Olympiad years, the four-year cycle it tracks most closely, is the... Heliad. Uh, Heliad. The... Calypic and the, oh boy, that last one's ex ligmos <laughs> schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, close enough. And unfortunately, I did not research what those were, but I'm assuming they were games because this was the game style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, what was this device made out of? So the me mechanism was made out of wood, a wooden casting with a front and back door, both containing inscriptions. The back door appears to be the instruction manual. On one of its fragments, it's written 76 years, 19 years, representing the uh, Calypic and Metonic cycles. Also written is 223 for the Saros cycle. On another one of the fragments, it is written on the spiral subdivision 235, referring to the Metonic dial. So, like we said, it had an instruction manual on it. The mechanism is remarkable for the level of miniaturization and the complexity of its parts, which is comparable to that of 14th century astronomical clocks. So think about that. This device yeah. was from 205 BC, and the next device that historians have been able to find that matches the technology in this device come from the 14th century. That's insane. That's 200 years before Jesus Christ is supposed to be on planet Earth, and they have this intricate device that's tracking solar eclipses in the future. So we're talking, what is that, 1,600 years? 14th century, no. Well, 200. 200 plus 14th. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. That's wild. Um, they go on to say it has at least 30 gears, although uh, mechanism expert Michael Wright has suggested that the Greeks of this period were capable of implementing a system with many more gears. So, you know, he's saying that, but, I, you know, they're saying this is the only device that they've found thus far. Yeah, so, like could there have been significantly more intricate ones? I mean, if this one survived for that long, you if there were more of them, you would think at some point we would find another fragment. Unless or it gear. was unless it was in a thing and like like secured well enough. Maybe it was so rare and expensive to build that only like kings had it at that time. That's kind of what I was thinking. Like, or is like this like a main one, and they yeah. used it to calculate everything, like our atomic clock. 
Yeah. Wherever that is. Yeah. In space, <laughs> in a satellite. Yeah. <laughs> so, was it accurate? Now, this is funny because uh, investigate, investigators reveal that their simulated mechanism is not particularly accurate, the Mars pointer being up to 38 degrees off at times, but they attribute this not due to any mechanical reasons, but because they didn't have a good understanding of space. They thought Mars rotated around Earth. And like we said, they didn't have they didn't have any ideas of leap years or leap days or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, they weren't tracking that long of a duration. So, uh, you know, from what I read, if they would have had a better understanding of how things worked in space, this device probably would have been very accurate based on how meticulous they were with their gears and oh so it's really what they're saying is it's 38 degrees off but it's if mars had a perfect circular orbit it wouldn't be well no if they if they're saying that um the device was designed based off of kind of faulty knowledge about how the planets orbited well that's what i'm saying like if they went in a full circle because it's saying the inaccuracies occurred at a nodal point when mars was in retrograde yeah it's also when my wife's angry is when mars is in retrograde (laughs) and the error recedes at other locations in orbit. So like yeah. it, cause like the orbits aren't perfect. They're kind of like elliptical a little bit, Yeah, you know? So like they probably calculated like a perfect circle around the earth. Yeah. Cause that's what it makes it sound like is it's off, but only because they assumed it was rotating in a circle around the earth and it's, well, it's not rotating around the earth, but it's an ellipse too. Mm-hmm. So like they tracked it cause they only had their eyes and it yeah. does look like it's going around in a circle. Yeah. So I would consider that accurate. And the coolest thing to think about was, there really would have been no way for them to make a more accurate device until the early 17th century when laws about how these planets rotated became better understood. So they they built a pretty good device based on the knowledge that they had at the time, which is really cool. Yeah, it's the most accurate thing in existence at that time with current knowledge. So now we're getting into the fun part. This is I do have a bunch of theories here. All right. Uh, so is it real? How could they have made it? So... The first theory is not that outlandish. Some people think it's much older than originally thought. Originally, scientists believe uh, the mechanism dated between 150 and 100 BC, but new new research places its creation at around 205 BC, which is what we kind of originally said. What's strange is, like we also said, that the first similar device that people have found since this device was the 14th century. So... How was it that the Greeks were so much more advanced, you know, almost 1,600 years earlier than, you know, medieval Europeans? So that is kind of puzzling. But we we know from history that the Romans had pretty advanced society and that it all collapsed and kind of Europe went into the Dark Ages. Yeah. And things didn't improve for hundreds of years. So it is possible that ancient Greeks were much more advanced, their society collapsed, and then things just didn't get better for a thousand years. Yeah. So. I, I, yeah, I, okay, I can see that. Next theory, time travel. <laughs> so if the mechanism dates to the second century BC and comparable technology didn't begin appearing until centuries later, then its existence might be proof of time travel. Oh. Maybe whoever invented it was a time traveler from the future or perhaps it's actually a futuristic device was bought, brought back to ancient Greece and left there on purpose. Ah, and then it normal decay over time. Yeah. Or it was like just a guy that was like, 
a Rick Moranis character from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids <laughs> that just invented crazy things. Right. And he got it right, but he was the only guy and everyone thought he was nuts. And then yep. that's it. Could be. Yeah. Uh, another theory that actually isn't that outlandish is that it's a hoax. So some people think it's fake despite overwhelming scientific evidence to the contrary. Some believe the whole thing is a hoax. After all, it is difficult to reconcile the age of the mechanism with the technological advancement. Some have compared uh, the mechanism to the Turk, a fake chess plane robot built in the 18th century. However, scientists admit the Turk is fake. Why would they lie about the authenticity of the mechanism? Uh, what would they be trying to hide? So, uh, Yeah, and it seems like a lot of hands have touched this thing. Yeah, and it and doesn't sound like... It, it sounds like almost from the beginning, it went into the property of Greece, and it's in their museum, so it's not like somebody profited off of it. Yeah. And the people were sponge diving and there was a, a shipwreck they found with a lot of other more valuable stuff that they, they brought up. Yeah. And it was set aside for 50 years. Yeah. Like the only it, thing I could think if of it was a prank. Whoever did it would be like, Hey, it's a gear. Like they're not going to wait their entire life. Yeah. And let someone else uncover it later. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of people don't believe the hoax theory. Yeah, um, I don't think it's a hoax. Next theory of course is aliens. And this, um, I've got a quote from our, our big-haired friend um, from Ancient Aliens. But, um, Giorgio Papalapalapalapalapagus? <laughs> I, I don't know how to say his last name. Uh, he goes to say, Beings with advanced knowledge of astronomical bodies, mathematics, and precision engineering tools created the device or gave the knowledge up for its creation to someone during the first century B.C., but the knowledge was not recorded or wasn't passed down to anyone. My only problem with this theory is if aliens gave it to them, wouldn't it be right with how the planets orbit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, not accounting for it all rotating around planet Earth. Or were they like, like, all right, we're going to give them this amazing device, but we're going to screw it up a little bit and see if they figure it out. <laughs> so, hold on. So your theory... Hold on, I'm going to clarify your theory. Yeah. Your theory is not only that ancient aliens gave it to us, but it was the kind of aliens that troll people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was alien internet. It was like alien bros. Alien Reddit. Like, hey, let's give them a thing that tracks space, but it's wrong. We're going to give them this amazing computer, but it's programmed wrong. Yeah, it's off 38 <laughs> degrees. Uh, got him. So, yeah, I think uh, that's an interesting theory, but you would think if aliens are going to give an ancient society technology, they would give them the correct. Oh, not if we're dealing with Braillians. Bro aliens. Bro aliens. <laughs> it's an alien race of trolls. Um, one of the final theories is it came from the lost city of Atlantis. That's it. We have to do a show on the lost city of Atlantis. Oh, no, we didn't. We talked about Bermuda Triangle in yeah. relation to Atlantis. I think we could do a whole episode on Oh, 100%. Uh, so much like the alien theory, this one revolves solely around the fact that uh, the mechanism appears to be too advanced for its time. Atlantis is a mythological, uh, technologically advanced city that sunk into the sea. Plato wrote about the city in a series of allegories, but many believe it actually exists, and some of those people think the mechanism is proof of uh, Atlantis is real. Uh, They think the mechanism originated in Atlantis, not Greece, because it was too far advanced for any known civilization. I bet those people that think that it proves that it's real already believed Atlantis was real. Yeah, well, it said it, they did. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a little bit of confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> um, 
besides those main theories, um, I found an article about some wild theories the New York Times wrote about a while back that the Illuminati made it, and an ancient race of lizard people made it. Um, I it, mean, it literally always, yeah, always comes down to lizard people, Illuminati, aliens. And uh, one theory was it's a device that is, if activated, depopulates the planet. And um, the funniest theory was um, it was made by Bill Gates. <laughs> For going on conspiracy theories, this one is a, a, a kind of a joke, but it was not, in fact, powered by hand crank, hand crank, but by a Mac computer because those are owned by the Illuminati. <laughs> so, those are all very le- so legitimate theories. Do they think they had a Mac computer back when this in Atlantis? I, that last one's kind of a joke. Okay, um, this is Steve Jobs just hanging out in Atlantis. Right. He's he time traveled. Yep, oh, it's the first Mac. Yeah, he's a goofy dude. Maybe. Yeah. So that is the interesting mystery about the, oh boy, am I going to get this right one last time? Um, get it. Can you say it, Joe? Uh, I got to look at the word. <laughs> Antikythera. Antikythera. Got it. You win the new car. Um, so our final mystery, and this is one I remember from history class a long time ago in like seventh or eighth grade, but I never heard about it again. The Lost Colony of Roanoke. Do you remember that one, Joe? I do not. So this, I remember, this was kind of, um, it obviously happened in 1585 in the U.S. um, off the eastern coast of North America. So in 1587, a small colony was found on an island off the eastern coast of North America. The settlement would have been the first permanent English colony in the New World had the settlers not disappeared uh, to unknown circumstances. So, in the settlement's difficult uh, founding year, its mayor, John White, left for England to request resources and manpower. He returned three years later to only find the settlement empty. His wife, child, grandchild, um, the first English child born in Americas, vanished. Uh, The word um, uh, Croatone Croatone, and the letters CRO carved into trees within the colony's borders were the only signs pointing to an explanation. So despite these clues, the returning crew was unable to search for missing colonists. A storm approached just as they came upon the desolate settlement, forcing them to turn back to England. So a whole town of people just vanished over the course of three years. No evidence. There weren't like remains or bones on the ground. uh, Just gone. And then these cryptic letters carved into the trees. Kind of weird, isn't it? (laughs) Well... This is supposed to be like the first people ever. It was one of the first se- English settlements in the Americas, uh, 1585. So, all right, keep going. I have, I have some things boiling. Okay, up here. I want to learn. More. I've got some theories on this one too, though. Okay, I think you'll like. All right. Um, on the basis of the mysterious tree carvings, the nearby uh, Croton Island, now known as Hatter's Island, um, uh, is that Hatteras? Hat- we're we're gonna get so many emails on this episode. You know, I don't care. <laughs> Hater's going to hate. Hatteras Island is the location to which many believe the colonists moved. At the time of the colony's founding, the Hatteras Indians occupied the island, and a popular popular theory supposes that the colonists joined the group of Native Americans to overcome their lack of resources and knowledge of the land. So that does kind of make sense. A supposed piece of evidence for this claim is the existence of carvings and stones that were uh, purportedly made by Eleanor Dare, the daughter of John White. 
These stones, often called the Dare Stones, contain written stories that tell the fates of the colonists and personal anecdotes from Dare to her father. Though they are largely, largely believed to be a hoax and forgery, there are some academics who believe that at least one of the stories may be authentic. Since 1998, the uh, Croton Project has researched the provided archaeological evidence to back up the theory that colonists moved to be with or at least interacted with the native tribe on the other island. So uh, that seems like a pretty that, plausible that's theory. That's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, they're three years. Yeah. They probably just left. Like, that's kind of how I look at it. These people are fresh from England into an, a wide-open wilderness. Yes. And, yeah, they already were having a rough year. Hold on. We're going we're gonna to learn how to pronounce Hatteras from Google. Ready? We're going to try this. This might be a new thing we do when we don't know a word. Okay. Hatteras. Hatteras. So we Hatteras. Right. Yeah. What yeah. about cro- Croton? All right. Let me look that one up. <laughs> Keep talking while I, while I pull. I have to, like, put it <laughs> okay. in here. So uh, artifacts and objects found within cro- uh, Croton villages that only English settlers had owned or had made at the time have solidified the connection between the theory that they blended in with the Native American tribe. Already? Yes. Croatoan. Croatoan. Dang, I was wrong. <laughs> Croatoan. We have, like, the most powerful tool ever right now that we've never tapped into. That's true. I, like, just hit me. I'm like, why don't I do pronunciation on Google? Because they always do it. We normally don't have this many hard words to pron- uh, pronounce. <laughs> this has been brutal. <laughs> We're going to get... That's why I'm glad you were reading it. I know. We're going to get so many emails from people upset that we've said these things wrong. So... Oh, well. They'll just make it on to... Uh, Sometimes that makes you build the listener base because they're so mad they're going to keep coming back to get us for more. If any of you are really mad about our pronunciation of words tonight, you can always call our phone number and leave a voicemail. Yes. Yes. The more angry you are, the better the chance you'll get on an episode. <laughs> When we do a fan <laughs> voicemail episode. So uh, just keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so despite the evidence and many other theories, it's likely that no definitive answer to the mystery of the colonists' disappearance will ever be found. So now I have some wild theories out there about what happened to them. All right. I'm so, ready. Obviously, the first one we kind of touched on is the colonists were absorbed into the local Indian populations or captured as slaves. I think that's the most logical. Most logical. I mean, the, the second one, the colonists were killed by Native Americans. Obviously, we all know the... I feel like they'd find the remains, though. I think the part that where they said they couldn't find any remains, yeah. like, they picked up and left with everything. I mean, it's not a secret that early settlers and Native Americans were not friends, mainly because the settlers were, you know... like. Coming to their land. Taking their land. Yeah, yeah, taking all their stuff. Yeah, and giving them smallpox blankets. and So I don't blame them for yeah, hating That would piss me off, too. The early settlers. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe the Native Americans, you know, killed them and then took their bodies away. Oh, like, okay. I could, yeah, I can see that. And then after a few years, like any of, like, the stuff yeah. that may have been left behind. Uh, another theory is uh, <laughs> cannibalism. So, uh they were either vict- victims of local cannibals or had to resort to cannibalism. And this theory does have a little ground to stand on because in 1609, uh, in the settlement of Jonestown, uh, Virginia, the colony had to resort to cannibalism to stay alive. So it is possible that the people of Roanoke had to as well. The settlers could have been hungry enough to see a cannibalism as a viable option. So 
that doesn't, I mean, uh, that's happening right now in North Korea. So like, it, it doesn't matter if it's modern times, whatever, if people are pushed to the edge, yeah. they'll do crazy things. Just so to I stay alive. I, yeah, I could see that. What if, about that? Um, Remember the Chilean soccer team that went down in the Andes? They made a movie about it. Oh, yes. Alive. Yes. They resorted to cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. To stay I, alive. I think, yeah, people, when pushed up, in, they're backed into a corner. <clears throat> yeah, so I think, nuts, <clears throat> crazy I think that theory is not outrageous. Uh, disease. So the Roanoke colonists could have encountered a new world disease that they had no immunity to fight. Uh, the theory goes that the colonists could have caught the good old-fashioned plague, which still went around those days, that presented symptoms of delirium, paranoia, mat- and madness. Considering the reports from Native tr- American tribes in the area of internal warfare in the Roanoke settlement before everyone disappeared, this does seem like a possible theory. Um, the healthy could have wanted to get rid of those who were sick because they were afraid of getting sick themselves. Yeah, they usually burn the bodies or do something like that. Yeah, this could have easily escalated into a violent situation. Once the disease hit, the, the healthy population could have sectioned off into smaller groups and left the colony, leaving the sick to die. So I think disease is another pretty possible theory especially back then yeah and i believe that people do fight when they take sides in disease yes <laughs> yes that's all we'll say um oh here's a fun one witchcraft that's so, it yeah that, that, that's it <laughs> so with the writing in the trees yeah a spell either they were executed as witches or victims of witches living in the area so there are two theories involving witchcraft the Croatoan either executed the colonists as witches or the colonists were victims of witches who live in the North Carolina woods. The Croatoans believed that witches and witch uh, believed in witches and witchcraft. Their definition of witches was people who use black magic to commit evil acts in everyday life. While there is no evidence that the Croatoan executed witches or that the Croatoan accused the people of Roanoke of witchcraft, they were known for condemning dangerous outsiders. They could they easily could have blamed the people of Roanoke for spreading disease to the Croatoan, who had no immunity. The, Cro- the Croatoans uh, and other Native American tribes tell legends of witches who live in North Carolina woods who use black magic to hunt other, other people, or hurt other people. There's also a story of people of Roanoke became the victims of these witches when they left the island, and that is why they never heard from them again. So I never thought about that um, with <clears throat> sickness. Totally being misconstrued as like witchcraft. Like if you come near somebody and all of a sudden you get sick, yeah, you could be like, oh, they cast a spell on me because people just didn't know about bacteria or viruses or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I could like see that being a viable. Totally. Like, I always thought it was like, oh, people just accuse people they didn't like, but like I could see a primitive <clears throat> human that doesn't understand science or anything yet being like, they touched me and now I'm sick. Like, now I have leprosy. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. or I have the plague now and they were by me. Like it yeah. was that person. <clears throat> yeah. So. Obviously, that is a very plausible theory. Now, we're here. here's the final theories. There's a couple kind of nested in here. So, supernatural or religious. Um, so, Native Americans believe in a wild... The Native Americans of this area believe in a wild spirit in the form of a beast called the Wendigo. Wendigo. Um, when people resort to... Wendigo. Eat, Wendigo. <laughs> I love it. This is the best thing ever. I can't believe it took us this long. We got live... Correction of how he's how do they say it again? Oh, just give me a second. I know what it is, but I want the computer to say it. Oh, I'll slow it down for you. Look at this. Wendigo. 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 There we go. There we go. 
Actually, we couldn't have done this until I got this cool board because the computer plugs into it. That's true. So when people resort to eating human flesh, as in the case of cannibalism, their bodies are taken over by a Wendigo. Uh, If the people of Roanoke resorted to cannibalism, then according to this belief, they are still alive roaming the woods of North Carolina in the form of Wendigos. And I think, do we ever, this has come up in our research for urban legend episodes and uh, yeah, like, uh, I remember one we did about people in the woods that were cannibals. Yeah. Uh, oh, that caller. Yes. Uh, what's her name called in? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if she's the used... cannibals. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think she used that name though. No. I feel like she, I would have remembered that name. Yeah. But she totally talked about people in the woods that were cannibals. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, the Croton belief system includes a spirit on the island that had the power to absorb humans into the landscape. Kind of similar to that rock thing we talked about yeah that like totally was the thing that happened to that lady yeah and no one provided a better theory (laughs) no (laughs) it was totally the rock creatures yes uh if the spirit was offended or angered it would turn people into trees animals stones or other part of the land if the colonists were exploiting the resources or abusing the land it could have angered the spirit this means that the people of roanoke didn't disappear at all they were just absorbed into the land so well that makes sense As to why they went back and nobody was there. Yeah. Uh, and then the final theory, the uh, Croton also believe in the reptilian devil of the woods, an evil spirit that could attach itself to people. The spirit made people violent, greedy, and paranoid. The Croton believed that the reptilian spirit had possessed the settlers once they started to turn on each other after uh, the mayor left for England to retrieve more supplies. That, so. that seems like it could totally be an illness that swept through the colony. Some kind of disease and, that yeah, made and him crazy. Yeah, blamed it on a devil reptile. Or a devil reptile. Got him. Like a devil reptile spread the disease? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that is all I had on the disappearance of the Roanoke colonists. Um, I can't believe I didn't know about this. I really like early American history. And I When I read this, I remember hearing about it in history class a long, long time ago, like briefly. Like they probably skip it because it doesn't have a real answer and they're not want to get kids distracted with reptilian devils well, and actually learn <laughs> other things. Yeah, they don't go into that much detail, but I do remember briefly reading about it, but I haven't seen anything. Uh, I mean, I've heard of Stonehenge, the, the first analog computer. I've heard the name on Ancient Aliens, but I didn't really know what it was. Before this. Yeah, I feel like uh, that's the most detail I've ever gotten on that thing. But I feel like I've seen it. Yeah. Like before and just didn't know what it was. Yeah. So um, I hope, you know, Joe and I love talking about this stuff. We're, you know, we're going to get some angry emails about our pronunciation. But um, we got a new pronunciation machine. We do. Yeah, that's pretty, (laughs) pretty nice. Uh, So, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, we like to switch things up every once in a while. It gets kind of, we can get down talking about people that, go missing and never get found. Yeah, these are fun. I think there's a subset of our group that likes these, and if you don't, eh, you can skip this one. Yeah. <laughs> we just do them once in a while. It's not like every episode. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like we said in the beginning of the episode, we've got a new YouTube membership uh, program. You can join that. We are also are on Patreon. Uh, Joe and I are going to really make an effort to be more active on Patreon. It's we're just a, it's a busy time right now. Um, and I think I'm starting to realize why we took three months off. Yeah. Because during that time, we'd kind of gather more stuff, but we'll just keep powering through it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it should, things should get a little better for us coming up here. Um, yeah, winter makes us stay inside. Yeah, it gets cold out. Uh, we got a lot of cool swag that you guys can buy. We've got hats and 
um, keychains and stickers and all kinds of stuff. We're going to be adding more things on there. Hopefully some shirts. Yeah, um, I just test ran some and they were terrible. Oh, really? I got a deal on our site and it was like nine dollars. So I'm like, I oh, got two. I, I saw that too. Yeah, they were super faded. It was crap. Yeah. So like, I tried, uh, but we'll try. We'll try some other places, but because I want to get some cool shirts. Yeah. So um, other than that, we appreciate you all for listening and our sponsors that help keep the show going. And remember. When enjoying the beauty and nature of the outdoor, <laughs> I keep screwing up all the buttons. <laughs> enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or just taking a walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time if I can figure this out. <laughs>